Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Aaron Grantham from Mid-America, St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, literally one of the people who developed CTOPCI in the U.S. and worldwide and who taught probably, probably the, whole city, the whole nation or even beyond the nation. So, um, so, Aaron, thanks again for joining us today and for being part of the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Manos. It's nice to see you and... Uh... I appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with your audience and you. Perfect. So, Aaron, you've done this for a long time. And I know you've been in an institution where, you know, Hartzler was there, then Barry Rutherford. I mean, you had some of the, you know, uh, giants in the field. But how did you get involved in all this? What was your uh, your way? How did you become involved into complex and city of PCI? It's actually a... a a fun little story of, of coincidences, I think. Um, uh, back when I was considering cardiology as a subspecialty, my, my father was a nephrologist. And so, you know, they're the thinkers in medicine. So I was telling him that, boy, I'm really interested in cardiology. I went down to the cath lab and I watched a guy do balloon angioplasty on a patient's left anterior descending. And I thought, this is the neatest thing I've ever seen and something I think I'm intended to do. So I was telling him about my interest in cardiology on our back deck in our cabin in Colorado. And he said, I guess that'd be okay. And a little bit later, he said, by the way, you know, if the situation ever presents itself, adopt an orphan disorder. And I was like, what is that? And he goes, well, my specialty is polycystic kidney disease. I had a friend in high school who had it. It was always in the back of my mind. And as I was training to be a nephrologist, I realized this was a disease that seemed to see a bit of, but nobody seemed to care about. So I saw it as my orphan disorder, something that I could get into. Um, back in, oh, 2002, 2003, I'd come out of the Mayo Clinic. I was doing general cardiology and interventional cardiology in Kansas City. I was brought into a group um, where I was placed in a satellite and was planning to matriculate to the main campus. And around 2003 or four, the dates always escape me exactly, I came across a patient with a CTO that had been in our practice and had been cathed about three or four times by different uh, operators in our group. And he was literally very, very miserable. He, he couldn't do anything. He gained a lot of weight. He was, uh, had chest pain, shortness of breath, had given up playing golf, given up walking the dog. And um, I just took a stab at it. I, I, I really only learned one technique at Mayo, and that was to use an you know, over-the-wire balloon and a Crosset XT wire. So I pulled a Crosset XT wire off the shelf at Mahi, and I put it through the lesion quite luckily and ballooned it, stented it, saw the guy back in a month, and he was literally in tears. And it struck me then that I'd, I'd found my orphan disorder. Um, that the, the one thing that uh, people didn't seem to care much about, even though we'd written lots of papers on CTO and Hartzler was the CTO guru, there were still people in our group not doing it, not offering it as a therapeutic alternative. Um, again, I saw it as my, my orphan and, and not 
more than three or four months after that. Again, the dates are not precise in my mind, but it wasn't long after that. Barry Rutherford came back from uh, the CTO summit, one of the very first CTO left main summits back in the early 2000s, where they actually defined CTO, which we didn't have a definition for in 2006 in a publication. But he came back and said, we're not doing this right. The Japanese suggest that we, you know, the Japanese uh, sensei, the real sensei suggests that we, you know, work together and that we learn new techniques. And at the time, Parallel Wire was coming along and Seesaw Wire techniques and, and the, some of the early CTO wires. And so he asked, Barry came back and said, who wants to join me? We're going to scrub together once a month. And I raised my hand. Nobody else did. And it was just a beautiful opportunity to get involved in something that nobody else seemed to care about, but we were seeing a lot of. So that's that's how I was introduced to the topic and, and became enamored with the idea of, of learning how to do something better that I really wasn't taught how to do in my training. And these were the very early days, right? I mean, 2003, 4, this is the days before retrograde. The very the equipment was not as good. So how did you actually learn? I mean, now we have all the things available, but back then no one knew much about it. So how did you actually get up learning and doing all this? We just had wires and we had, I was, I was trained in IBIS. I could actually figure out how to do an IBIS guided antegrade puncture and a few other things. But yes, we had very rudimentary tools. Most of it was over the wire balloons. Fine cross was the first micro catheter I had access to and I Essentially, um, some were brought into the country before they were readily available and uh, was able to use some of those. But really, Manos, it was just figuring out how to use wires better. And, you know, they were coming up with, with some new wire designs. But the bottom line was they were all stiff wires. They were, you know, not technically jacketed and they were tapered. And there was a, an array of them currently available, including that one we mentioned, Cross at XT 100, 200, 300. Um, and others. And it was really just a poke and hope strategy. It was put the wire down, see how far you can go. And, um, you know, David Holmes had just sort of published the, the, the work on the contralateral injections to improve the safety and efficacy. And so we started to employ that. I learned because Barry adopted me and he provided me with cover because in those days um, it was really regarded as a, you know, sort of a game for cowboys, a game for people who were more interested in showing off their superior skills than they were, you know, demonstrating their good judgment and their their uh, their care of patients. So it was uh, it was baptism by fire. It was scrubbing with Barry one day a month, and eventually we got enough cases to do two days a month. And then we started running courses, teaching what little we had learned, and then we began uh, inviting our Japanese colleagues over. Dr. Maso Chai was my main uh, mentor in terms of, of the Japanese parallel wire, seesaw wire, and ultimately retrograde techniques. But Dr. Kato and Dr. Ochai were two of my early mentors in, in those techniques we didn't have at Mahi yet, but we're developing. But really, it's through collaboration and working with other people. It's the only way to learn. It still remains, I think, the best way to learn. And, you know, you've been very creative in developing all these refinements of the techniques later on, you know, the straw, all these things and the greatest sexual reentry and uh, creating the hybrid algorithm and everything else. So how did you get to the ideas? How you come up with the ideas for doing all these things? Yeah, well, it's funny. I would never claim one of them as my own. The, the straw technique, um, I remember hearing Craig talk about it. Craig Thompson, a great friend of mine and, and a world-class CTO operator, talking about straw technique and how... We keep getting foiled by hematoma in the subinimal space, and there's got to be a way to aspirate blood out of it if you put a 
something down beside the stingray balloon. Um, so that's just one thing that, that I happened to fumble my way through while I was proctoring Carlo de Mario in London. So we actually pulled off the first straw technique. Again, this is a, it's a way we can improve our success rate with this technique called anti-grade dissection and re-entry using this stingray balloon. Um, when that stingray balloon is beside the vessel lumen and not in the lumen, you know, your goal is to poke back into the true lumen. And if blood is accumulating in that subintimal space, it makes the balloon float rather than sit up against the intima and give yourself access to the lumen. So Craig had discussed it a little bit. I had the idea about it. And then it came to pass that it was absolutely necessary to solve this particular problem. And we successfully executed it with all the right pictures to prove that it worked. And and uh, and then we were able to have some figures drawn and and uh, you know provide those to the the educators in the community to, to disseminate that information and get it out and teach it during other courses. But mostly it's stumbling across things. You know this this external cap crush thing. I didn't even know what I had done when I explained to Bill Lombardi what I had done. He goes, "Oh, that's an external cap crush. What a great idea!" Um, so it's so funny how you learn. And and again. None of this is a stroke of my genius. It's things I've picked up and been able to extend a little bit and uh, have fun uh, sharing with other people and getting them to make it even better. Think about straw and how much more sophisticated that is now with Bill Nicholson's new device. So there's, there's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to be allowed to be creative, you know, without taking undue risks and find new ways to, to do things that have never been described before. And that fits perfectly. You know, people say that the more you teach something, the better you get at it and you understand it. And obviously, you've taught so many people nationally and internationally. How has that helped uh, you yourself? Do you think that you are still learning this or uh, when you talk to people and you teach people or you've reached a level of maturity that is pretty uh, enough for now? How, how are things evolving for you right now? Oh, I look back on my practice every year and think about um, how naive and stupid and uninformed and <laughs> lucky I was to get away with the things I was doing last year. It really, I think it's it's constantly growing. It's one of the few places in interventional cardiology where there are new and different things on a fairly regular basis. There's With the pandemic, there's been quite a lull in technological development, technique development, but but uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's still a learning process. It's a lifelong learning process. I got another fun story of something I learned while I was proctoring. I was in Columbia, Missouri, and working with Tony Spady, and we were doing an ADR case, and we had gotten stuck using a six French system, and and uh, we had a successful stick and drive. The wire went down. We were in the true lumen, and we couldn't figure out how to get this long over the wire balloon off our short wire. And his technician, John, uh, who subsequently has moved, uh, but John with his very uh, Eastern European accent said, why don't we just cut the balloon shaft off? I was like, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so we just took a scalpel and <laughs> essentially circumcised the balloon and did, you know, finished the exchange, saved the case. And, uh, and about a month later, Lombardi was doing a live case in London and I was watching on a Saturday morning at my house for some insane reason. He got stuck in the exact same situation, a case that had been thrice previously failed. He had gotten done, but had to do six French. And I started texting people I knew in the audience and tell Bill to cut the balloon off the shaft with a scalpel. And he gets on and he goes, Aaron, are you serious? Is this going to work? And I texted back, yes, it is. Just do it. And it worked. And, you know, so John, I, John is uh, what a terrific guy. Uh, he came to a, a subsequent 
um, course of ours at Mahi, and we gave him a recognition and award, and and he he changed somebody's life. You know, he saved a case in London uh, because he came up with a great idea while I was Procter Tony. So there's information everywhere, Manos. You know this. I mean. You can learn things from your fellows. They'll challenge you to do something new. You can learn things from guests in your lab during courses. I really like to have guests in my lab and listen to them and just listen for nuggets of, of truth that might help you. The sources of information are, are all over you, all around you. So be, that's the thing I encourage young trainees the most is to be open-minded and use the people in your lab for information. It's not all going to be useful and, in, and, and informative, but You'd be surprised where you can pick up some really neat solutions to unique problems. Now, um, Aaron, have you changed the way you prepare for these cases? Now, with all the experience that you have, how do you pre- how do you plan for them now versus before? Yeah, it, it well, that's that's definitely evolved, and I would say that I probably plan less now than I used to. It may be a mistake, but um, I spend a lot. Um, of time reviewing angiograms, and I'll typically do it when I meet the patient. I, I try to meet every patient in the office. I would never do ad hoc CTO angioplasty. And well, I just let's say rarely. Shouldn't be saying never. Um, and so rarely, rarely do ad hoc CTO angioplasty. So I try to get fully prepared with a plan in my mind while I'm talking with the patient because I think it informs my, uh, you know, the, the informed consent and helps me do a better job of trying to personalize that. And, and you know, it's a whole different ballgame, Manos, when you have like, you know, one option in an 80-year-old patient who's miserable uh, and, you know, there's an epicardial collateral that's pretty scary to you. You can, you know, start talking to them about the strategies you may be able to employ and the, the risk associated with those. So, listen, I try to prepare by knowing what I'm going to do before I even meet the patient so I can use that in the informed consent discussion. And then, unfortunately, most of the time it's two or three weeks before I see them again So, uh, and in the cath lab. And so I'll re-review everything the morning of the procedure. And uh, more and more these days, as I get older, I keep asking the fellows, have I met this patient before? <laughs> uh, kind of forget what I had thought about during the whole thing. I don't really dictate to myself what my strategy is, but uh, most of the prep is pre-procedural, if I've got a case I'm really unsure about or I'm really nervous about, if I start to feel that sense of, um, we're going to be out here, you know, on a a limb, and this is a a much higher risk procedure than an everyday angioplasty or CTO angioplasty, then I'll call Bill or call Mike and I'll run through it with them or Tony or one of our friends and and, uh, see what I can do to make sure that I'm not missing an opportunity for something a heck of a lot more straightforward than I have in my mind. And then when you do the cases, you know, at least to the people watching, you seem always very calm, collect, and focused. And do you ever get stressed out in those cases or you're able to just, you know, scroll around, go around them and feel pretty relaxed and calm? Oh, man, no way. I am a, uh, I'm an emotional person. <laughs> I feel it. I, I, <laughs> I get nervous. Um, I, like I said, I, I know when I'm, starting to think, well, should I be doing this? Should I be sending this somewhere else or doing this? That I need to call somebody. I need to talk to them. I need to get my ducks in a row and I need to have a good plan going into it. A good plan going into procedure helps a lot with the uh, anxiety, but um, there are still cases that uh, where patients have lots of comorbidities and they're using, you know, L, you know, mechanical circulatory sport and all kinds of other stuff where I'm nervous and uh, I will tell my team, I said, guys, this one is a difficult case. It's high risk. I need everyone focused. 
Um, I need my top, top people in the lab. Uh, there's no reason, there's no room for hurt feelings. Uh, if somebody's scheduled to scrub that case, who's not quite ready for that case, and I have to make a substitution, everybody knows that this is in the interest of our patients. And uh, it's really, it's not about just keeping me calm and, and, and focused. It's about the patient. And uh, so we have a culture in our lab where I think it's it's unparalleled uh, uh, around the world and in, in, in that collaborative spirit and that willingness to step in or get, you know, my superstar um, tech or nurse out of lab three and bring them into lab two so they can be with me during this case. So all those things kind of come into play. Perfect. And then uh, in terms of the hard cases, the ones that don't work, or even when you get a complication, how do you handle that? Um, you find ways to, that, how, does, it, does it impact you very much? Does it get you depressed? How do you deal with those uh, failed failures and complications? I'm in constant battle with the imposter syndrome. Um, you know, it's, uh, it is, I've tried my entire career to stay as focused on patients as, as humanly possible and to make it about them and make, keep the focus on them and their, their quality of life. And, and, um, and it hurts when things don't work. And when you have the complications that you are know are inherent in the, in the procedure, um, it's a very difficult thing. Um, I always tell folks that I'm uh, mentoring or, or proctoring that, um, you know, if you call me with a complication, my first question is going to be, what was the indication? Um, because that then tells me you are on solid footing. You know, if you have a good indication and you have provided fully informed consent with family members present, I think doing it alone with the patient is perilous because there's no telling what they tell their family. But if you do that with a family member present, I also have a standard line when I'm talking to patients who may be, um, you know, considering either a medical option, medical therapy option or surgery or something else. Um, with the family member present, I tell the family member, this is our discussion. You, uh, me and Mr. Jones are going to make this decision and leave you out of it. Uh, I want you to hear what they're thinking about it and how they feel about it. But let us make the decision so that if things don't go as planned, if we have one of those problems I mentioned to you, that it's our uh, responsibility and you won't feel that way. So I try to take the onus off off the family members when it comes to that. But um, perfect and then um, when it comes to teaching fellows I know you've taught people for a long time is there something that you look for when you choose those fellows is it personality is it uh, how good their hands are H how do you choose the people that you come to train with you yeah well first of all we don't have a chip program so there's not a next step for our fellows they're going to learn what they learn in their one year of coronary interventions then they're going to go on for a structural year or a chip fellowship somewhere else so um i started with a chip fellowship i had one graduate taishi harai who's just doing fantastic work at the university of missouri in columbia um is now associate professor there and and uh, uh really making great headway on his program um, I had him for a six-month fellowship, and it was so disruptive to the other fellows. Their volumes dropped by 25%. They were very upset about it. But I just decided, okay, I'm not going to do the special CHIP fellowship, but I'm going to try to teach these fellows in one year what um, you, know, you know most people are asking them to do a full second year of. And um, I, I'm going to acknowledge that they're probably not going to be ready for CTO, PCI independently. 
unless they're in a very good environment, a supportive environment with another mentor to help them keep working. So what I, my goal for them is to learn things to make them a better coronary interventionalist who doesn't necessarily do CTOs. And, and I just got some great feedback from Scott Janis, our, one of our current fellows, about how he fixed a renal artery with all the stuff he'd learned uh, in coronary CTO from me. And that just felt great. So I look for young physicians who are energetic, enthusiastic, who are really, um, again, patient-centered, uh, but also are, are um, willing to, to push their own limits. There are a lot of fellows who come in and they're just very trepidatious. You know, just moving the wire a little bit is, you can tell, it's just going through their mind. And, and so uh, it, it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, mental fortitude, uh, some some courage and uh, a willingness to explore and do new things. Some, some, you know, adventuresome fellows, but, but um, I, I have not, I would say been terribly successful at producing high volume CTO PCI operators with a one year fellowship when they have so many other things to learn about basic angioplasty. So that's been, that's, that's been discouraging, but uh, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to work within the bounds of the, of the current requirements for our fellowship and, and uh, help fellows be even better than they would have been had they been at a program that doesn't do CTOs. I think that that's safe to say that we've accomplished that goal. And then when it comes to the safety of you know yourself and the staff and the radiation specifically, and you, know, you do so many cases and a lot of exposure to radiation, lead, et cetera. How do you deal with that? Any special things that you do? Yeah, well, I will tell you this, that, that my focus really has been on getting out of lead because I've had a one back surgery and two episodes of cervical spondylitis, and I had another ruptured disc that I treated with a couple of rounds of a Medrel dose pack and got out of it that way. So I'm more concerned about my orthopedic injury from uh, a lifetime of abusing my back and, and 25 years of wearing lead. Um, that that's been my focus. And so we're really uh, relieved to finally obtain a, a Rampart uh, radiation protection system that gets me out of lead. That's been a godsend. I've had it for about three months. And uh, that's that's been fantastic. And now I'll focus more, you know, on radiation. But uh, I, I uh, man, I had had the thin lead. I cut the back end out of my lead to lighten my lead. I wear a waist belt when I was wearing lead uh, to wow. get the all the weight off my shoulders, on my hips. Did everything possible, and a buddy of mine, Steve Marceau, who's also had back problems, gave me a book um, uh, by a gentleman named McKenzie, and it's called Heal Your Own Back, and it's a series of very simple exercises that I try to do twice a day to, to keep my back in shape. Um, uh, again, that's a little hit or miss lately, but uh, there are lots of things. I am not the most physically fit human being on the planet. That's obvious by looking at me, um, so I have been negligent in that regard, but um, the, the, the main strategy has been getting out of lead, which has been just fantastic. And I'm so grateful that uh, there's a company out there who cares about physicians trying to get hospitals and CEOs to care about physicians because that's been their major barrier to any type of success is getting through the C-suite for this capital expenditure that nobody has the money to pay for. So, And then how do you uh, stay, I guess, uh, in uh, in good shape, apart from the exercises, mentally and otherwise, do you do other things? Do you, you know, relax, meditate, read books? I mean, wh how do you uh, keep your uh, motivation and good spirits doing all this? Um, I I 
try really hard to be a faithful person. My wife and I like to go to mass every Sunday uh, together. I I do a lot of prayer. Um, I uh, typically, you know, when I'm awake at three in the morning because my back hurts, I <laughs> that's what I do to get my mind off of the, you know, this the the cycle, this repetitive prayer. Um, uh, but uh, for the most part, I, I I talk to my good friends. You know, you asked about do you get depressed? Yes, twenty twenty one was absolutely an abysmal year. I had. Um, with both CTO and some non-CTO, uh, in particular, uh, a STEMI outcome that was just devastating. Uh, I got, things got pretty pretty rough, Manos, and uh, it, it got to the point where I had to do a lot of, you know, counseling with Bill. I'm sure, you know, during Bill's Sensei podcast, he talked a lot about mental health and about about uh, uh, physician wellness, and and he referred me to a lot of uh, audiobooks by Brene Brown. Um, I I listened to quite a few other people. Um, one of my favorites is Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's controversial because of some politics, but if you forget about the politics and listen to his life lessons and his philosophy, um, uh, there's some really good messages for for people uh, who do what we do and um, sort of suffer the consequences of the, you know, the emotions that go with real life human beings on your table who walked in uh, to your cath lab and um, or may not walk out. Um, and, and that's a situation that not very many people face in the world. And none of my friends outside of medicine understand that. Um, so I've been relying on my friends inside of medicine, especially the people in the CTO chip space who, who live it every day like we all do. Then do you have any favorite books, any favorite movies? Oh, my, uh, a lot of favorite uh, books. I, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, I think, is a, is a, great, a great resource. Um, again, with the caveats I've already discussed, please, let's not talk politics. Let's just talk about, you know, uh, you know, taking care of yourself like you're somebody you actually care about and a few of the great lessons he's taught me. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, you know, he's really helped me understand that my focus shouldn't be on being as good as Bill Lombardi. That's never going to happen. You know, just get over it. My focus should be on being better than I was yesterday. And that's my mantra now. I try every day to be just a little bit better than I was yesterday to make sure I've got an overarching goal. That, that That's not necessarily a thing like, you know, I want to be um, professor of medicine or whatever. It's it's. it's it's just sort of a guiding principle. Mine has been um, that it's been, you know, to, to be focused on the patient and to be focused on their quality of life outcomes. That's you know, the central core of the research I do is in quality of life and outcomes after complex PCIs in CTOs and surgical turndowns. So um, uh, I think that's that's been a fun book and that's been a good guide for me over the last six or seven years in terms of shaping my thoughts and organizing my internal dialogue to, to give myself a focus and not be so scattered. I used to just be, yeah, say yes to whatever and get out there and do it. Just keep going, 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 stay busy, say yes, say yes. And uh, I'm being more selective now and more thoughtful about what it is I take on or don't take on. And then um, I know that you're one of the few people in the field who actually has been able to do amazing work you know, with the CTO registries, uh, some of the early studies on quality of life, now with uh, uh, surgical turndowns. So literally, 
he has been able to bridge this academic part, which not many people, as you know, in the field do. How, how did that happen, and how does that help you or not in the clinical um, arena? Yeah, it, it happens purely by collaboration. I am not formally trained in research methodology. You know, during my um, chief resident year, I, I did a little on, uh, you know, a little course on statistical analyses, and uh, you know, I learned very rudimentary things. The, the, the research I did at Mayo was basic science. I mean, we were doing one-way ANOVA tests. We weren't doing um, you know multivariate analyses and all kinds of sophisticated modeling and other things. All of that, all of that comes from my my dear friend John Spurtis at uh, at uh, Mahi, who's world renowned in, in health. Uh, status outcomes and invented and developed and validated the the uh, Seattle Angina questionnaire, which is now sort of the gold standard in terms of quality of life outcomes, and it's finally been um, you know somewhat accepted by the FDA as a as a clinical endpoint for trials. Um, but John has been incredibly gracious in supporting me, and all of my research has been enabled by industry. And uh, that may sound like anathema to people now, um, but quite frankly, um, I wouldn't have gotten an NIH grant. And you know very well, Manos, because you're the most gifted sort of um, investigator in our whole fold, uh, that the NIH um, wouldn't sponsor, you know, your your outcomes, your, C, your, your health status outcomes trial, uh, how hard that was to get funding. So, you know, without... Um, Boston Scientific, Asahi, Medtronic, and some of these companies that saw the opportunity to, you know, expand our field, and it would be good for them if they could get some doctors to do some things they couldn't do, because they would put in some of their stents. But, I mean, there's been no quid pro quos, but there's just the rising tide raises all boats mentality. So they saw the value in what we were trying to prove uh, and and um, have been supportive in that. So, honestly, it's collaboration, because I don't have the complement of skill sets. You can tell by the papers I review once in a blue moon for Jack, but I'm, I'm not the analyst. I'm the big picture guy and uh, also have been able to raise money. And with John and, and Spurtis and Adam Salisbury at Mahi, I've been able to participate in that aspect of things in a way that's that's helpful. But, um, you know, without them, I would produce absolutely nothing. Well, I mean, clearly, you know, getting all these steps that you mentioned, the big picture actually is the harder thing to get. Everyone can be analytical, analyze the statistics, but getting the big picture, actually, I would say that's the most important thing, and that's what's missing most of the time. But when it comes to all the things you've done, clinical research, otherwise, or personally or professionally, what are the things that you are most proud of so far? Yeah, that, the, you know, the word pride is... Uh, it's a big word. <laughs> it's one of the seven deadly sins, Manos. <laughs> Don't be too prideful. <laughs> um, I, 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 let me, I prefer to think of it as, as the opportunity I'm most grateful for is to try to be um, a person who, who constantly tries to orient the CTO community to the patient. Um, just trying to get people patient-focused, patient-centered. You know, when I got into this in 2003, 4, 5, the space was full of people saying they were doing things they weren't really doing. It was full of people who were trying to get famous and uh, all kinds of different motivations for being involved. And And um, I, I, I hope to be thought of as the, the, the person who, you know, again, tried to orient the CTO community to the patient, keep them focused on 
quality of life. The quantity of life question is always going to be controversial and probably isn't even worth arguing about anymore. There's so much opportunity to improve the quality of life of our patients um, that I still remain um, really, really interested and intrigued by the opportunity to, to, to figure that out. Um, I'm obsessed now with, with dyspnea as an angin equivalent and obesity. And I just, <laughs> I really think there's so much angina equivalency that's not really there. It's something else. I mean, I, next great trial, Miles, we, we, we got to do an Ozempic trial. You know, you get randomized to Ozempic or CTO PCI. If you're overweight, dyspneic, and you have a CTO, that's the, that's the next trial, man. <laughs> Lose 40 pounds. Well, that would be a lot of enrollment there. <laughs> yeah, we'd enroll that in about a week, wouldn't we? <laughs> No, I must. I will be the first one to sign up, but I completely agree. No, that's one of the things we learned out of Open. Suzanne Arnold did a terrific analysis for us on dyspnea using the Rose Dyspnea Scale, and you know the the quality of life benefits of a dyspneic patient were much less robust than the quality of life benefits of a patient with true chest pain anginal syndromes. And uh, it's always been a you know so it's I've always you know check a BNP, do a physical exam, make sure they don't have heart failure. If they have COPD, you got to see two sequential PFTs to figure out if they're declining in their COPD or if they actually have this 12-year-old CTO that's caused them to become dysmic in the last month. So there's there's a lot of things you have to do in terms of due diligence to make sure you're you're treating the patient the right disease for the patient so that they do have a chance of getting better. And it's also helped me explain to some patients where I just can't put my finger on whether or not they're going to get better, that there is a chance you're not going to feel any different because you have seven other reasons to have dyspnea. And you need to, you need to think about that. We'll try 17 other medications. And if it doesn't work and it's the last thing you have, we'll go ahead with your procedure. So just being diligent about uh, patient expectations, uh, something that fell out of that little project that I thought was very useful clinically. So I guess this is the thing that excites you most right now. The, oh, oh, it's, it's just something that, that we need answers for. <laughs> we just need to figure out yeah. what to do with these people. But what are you most excited about personally and professionally? What are the things that you're looking forward to on a, on a day-to-day basis? I can't wait for for CTO plus. Been, oh, I've been away from my posse <laughs> for so many years. I, you know, we went last year and things, but... Getting back to meetings has been um, been wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm doing less of it, being more selective. You know, uh, when you start saying no, you start getting fewer invitations. But I still want to go to CTO Plus, and I want to go to TCT, and I want to see my friends, and I want to have dinners, and I want to have uh, I want to know more about their families, and I want to know more about what's going on in their lives, and, and I also want to talk shop a little bit. I want to see how see how things are going. I've learned more at those things about the business of medicine, you know, what, what industry is looking for, how to speak to a hospital CEO or C-suite person, you know, with, uh, or, you know, the return on investment and other things that, you know, Lombardi and Wyman and these guys that know this stuff, somehow they're born with knowledge, I guess, have shared it with me. So it's just, I, I, I mostly look forward to get excited about hanging out with my friends, you know, at, at the meetings and, and, uh, Spending some quality time and networking. Perfect. And then um, how important has family been in your trip so far? Again, it's, it's a demanding job and we work many long hours. And again, you may not be always the most relaxed and refreshed when you go home. So how have you been dealing with that part? 
Yeah, a long time ago, you know, Craig Thompson told me that that uh, whatever time you've got's got to be quality time, and I failed at that pretty miserably. I was, you know, I, I have four children um, who, you know, are the lights of my life. They, they I, I love every moment I get with them. Um, but you know, when Dad was a younger person forging his way in this space and and um, getting lots of invitations, it was awful hard to say no to them. So I missed out on, uh, you know, the younger two were born while I was in uh, either in, in Kansas City. So they were born in Kansas City before I went to Rochester. Then our third child was born in Rochester and our fourth child was born back here in Kansas City. The older two had a different dad than the younger two. I was around more. I was, even though I was in training, I was still around more. I was moonlighting and I wasn't as busy as I got the first 15 years of my practice in the CTO space. And so the younger two had a little less dad and a lot more mom. And without Sheila Grantham, my wife, um, who uh, really took care of business while I was gone and learned how to be independent and take care of things on her own, without her willingness to do that and pull us through, um, I would probably be one of the hundreds and thousands of cardiologists who are divorced and have had broken families or broken ties and other things. I, I don't mean anything pejorative about that. I just, uh, I, you know, uh, I got through because of my wife and uh, her willingness to help me um, pursue this professional pathway and also keep me centered on the children and keep me to best her best ability to focus on the kids when I was home and, and carry my weight when I was here. So again, more teamwork, you know, without teamwork, we're all in trouble. And by the way, uh, since I suspect my daughter may see this someday, I'm most excited about her getting married next New Year's Eve. I think that's fantastic. Wow. We can't wait for that. Well, congratulations. <laughs> this is uh, going to be an exciting year coming up. So congratulations, yeah. Aaron. Yeah, I need to do some more moonlighting. <laughs> <laughs> well, well worth it. It's a good cause. Well, again, you've had a tremendous career and you've impacted so many people, again, all over the world. If you had to give your advice now for the ones who are starting or who are early on their career path, based on what you've learned and you've done, what are the things you would advise them? Um, there's, I think there are a couple of things that, are, that were instrumental in my success that if they can be reproduced, it would be really helpful. And one is you know, is understanding the environment you're working in. And um, if that environment is purely RVU compensated, you're swimming upstream. You're going to be really challenged to do this work. And that was a big blessing I've had all my life is I didn't until last year, I didn't know what an RVU was. I've had to learn recently because the pressure is coming. Um, second, if you can team up with somebody, if you're young and you need somebody else to cover for you while you learn this and you are less successful and have a few complications. Um, if you have someone there to get you through, that's great. If you can get somebody to support you from outside, that's good too, as long as they've got credibility within your institution. So those two things are, are, are really helpful. And then understanding who you are and whether or not you're the right person. I've, I'm, I'm still struggling with how to counsel somebody who I just know doesn't have it here uh, to do this kind of work. Um, I walk into a place to proctor. If the first word's out of their mouth, we can't have any complications. It's like, why are we here? <laughs> this is 
higher risk angioplasty. It's not risk prohibitive, but it's higher risk. If you haven't been doing this uh, and you haven't had complications, it's because you haven't been doing this and you're going to get complications. It's part of the work we do. Um, so, so that's another thing, preparing yourself mentally for the uh, onslaught of emotions that comes with a higher risk endeavor. Uh, and, uh, and why is it worth it in the, at, at all? It's because it's a higher risk, higher reward. And that reward is for patients. You know, these are people who've been told for years and years and years that nothing can be done. Nothing should be done. If I can't do it, nobody can do it. And there are lots of opportunities for them to get care if we can teach enough people how to do this. And if they're in a good environment, they have the right mindset and they have the time uh, to do it uh, and they're not economically disincentivized from doing it, then they can be successful just like me and hundreds of other people who've uh, you and I and others have been able to teach. Absolutely. Well, again, I think these are great points of wisdom. I think everyone focuses on the technical parts, but these factors you mentioned, the environment you work in, the mentality and the willingness of the environment to accept the high risk are critical for any program to succeed. Jeff Hartzler had a hilarious so thing, uh, saying. Yeah, I was going to say, Hartzler had a funny, um, uh, there's a funny story about Jeff Hartzler and Tierstein was, uh, Paul Tierstein was on his first day of fellowship and, and he was talking and Jeff, I think, was trying to get him to be quiet like we all do, but no, just kidding. Um, he said, <laughs> I can teach anybody how to do it. I can teach a monkey how to do angioplasty. In fact, that's what I'm getting ready to do right now. So <laughs> essentially referring to Paul as a monkey that he was going to train. CTO-PCI techniques are not, they're teachable. We've, that's, that was the beauty of the hybrid algorithm that you so eloquently described. It's like, we can teach you how to do this if you can just get over your obsession with wires. If you can just get over, get used to working in the subintimal space and getting out of it the techniques are they're, they're obtainable by most operators. It's between the ears that makes the difference. The people that will get it or not get it. Are you a James Spratt who can pick this up literally with one or two visits from Lombardi? He's just amazing that way. He had the right mental attitude and he had the right um, willingness to learn and keep an open mind. There's lots of people like that. And then there are people who've had 15 visits over the last five years, and they're never going to get it without somebody right beside them, coaching them through, getting them to do the things they, they just they can't do themselves. And so we can teach anybody as long as they're willing to learn. Perfect. Well, again, Aaron, thank you so much. That was incredible overview. Again, this is literally reliving the history of uh, CTO-PCI over the last two decades when things evolved. So thank you so much for taking the time. I think I think it will be, your kids will be very proud of what you've done when they watch this down the line. And again, super excited to catch up with you at CTO+. Plus. All right, Manos. Nice visiting with you, and thanks for doing this. It's a fun thing, and, and uh, I'm not sure what it's worth to anybody, but I had fun doing it, and I appreciate uh, you asking me to, to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast. 